Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning with a, a word of prayer as we begin. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this new day. We are thankful for how you are faithful to your promise. Um, you give us rest. You give us rest in your Son and his work on our behalf, and you give us rest uh, by setting apart um, one day a week uh, that we might gather together as your people and be in your presence. And Father, we ask this morning that as we prepare our hearts for worship, your Spirit would attend us and be with us as we think um, uh, of the topic of prayer. And we are guided by it, in it, by, uh, by John Calvin. We pray that you would help us to reflect on these things and to grow as we consider them together. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, we are continuing our great book series on the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Uh, we actually are getting... Fairly, fairly close to the, the end. We're almost done with book three, which means that we only have book four left. Um, Mike Venzel will be teaching next Sunday on election, um, so that's something to look forward to. I decided to give Mike the easy topic and uh, be kind in that way. Um, so Mike will be filling in next week, and then we'll spend a few more weeks covering book four, which has to do with um, uh, the church, church government and also in the government of society in general and then the sacraments, basically, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So that's a, some rich stuff there that Calvin has for us as well. But today we turn our attention to the topic of prayer. Um, and I'm going to skip over um, the sort of review that I typically do. I'd like to do that just as a way to, to keep these things fresh in our minds and to uh, make sure they're being impressed within us. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff to cover on prayer. Um, Calvin, in Book 3, Chapter 20, he just has one chapter on prayer, uh, but it is a long chapter, and it is a rich chapter. Um, I would certainly commend it to you in its entirety. Um, I think it is a, a well worth the time that it would take um, for you to read and study. Um, Book 3, Chapter 20 of the Institutes is entitled in this way, Prayer, which is the chief exercise of faith, and by which we daily receive God's benefits. So Calvin basically defines prayer, the chief exercise of faith, by which we daily receive God's benefits. Uh, remember that faith for Calvin is a, is a fundamental part of the Christian life. Of course, it is the way in which the Spirit unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is um, in our faith that we are united to Him. Um, but he calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. I just want to think about that for a moment before we dive into the content here. Why would Calvin call prayer the chief exercise of faith? Why is prayer the chief exercise of faith? Thoughts about that? Because you're doing it? Yep, it's something that you're doing repeatedly, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, two, two people said the same thing at once. It shows dependency on God, right? That prayer is a way in which we acknowledge our need for God, and we every time we pray, we, in a sense, put our trust in Him again. We exercise our faith in Him again, and His goodness, and the intercession of His Son on our behalf, on the present work of His Spirit in our life. Um, prayer is a way that we exercise our faith again and again. We daily receive the benefits of God as we pray. And prayer, of course, is. It's one of the means of grace, and it's, it's different from, um, of course, at least the sacrament, um, because the sacrament is not something we receive daily. Uh, but prayer is something we're called to, um, to do daily, or even, as Paul puts it um, multiple times in his epistles, continually, all the time. Um, we're supposed to be praying all the time. Our life is to be one of prayer. And I think we'll come back to that and think about it some more at the end as well as we think about 
what it means for prayer to be the chief exercise of faith. So here's what Calvin, how Calvin begins um, his um, writings on prayer. He says, but after we've been instructed by faith to recognize that whatever we need and whatever we lack is in God, from this is one of Calvin's substantial arguments in his institutes, that we and ourselves have nothing, the whole of our salvation must come from God, that all that we need is found in him, and in, particularly in his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we have been instructed by faith to recognize that whatever we need and whatever we lack is in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Father willed all the fullness of his bounty to abide, so that we may all draw from it as from an overflowing spring. So we, we've come to this point in the, in the argument of the Institutes where we know that it is by faith that we avail ourselves of all that we need that is hidden in God and especially in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like an overflowing spring. And yet, Calvin says, it remains for us to seek in him and in prayers to ask of him what we have learned to be in him. It's as though God is this pool of goodness and, and richness and love, and yet prayer, according to Calvin, is the way in which we daily avail ourselves, constantly avail ourselves of that spring, of that well, um, that gives us all that we need um, to live and learn and grow. Um, prayer is the thing that connects us to the Father. Otherwise, to know God as the master and bestower of all good things, who invites us to request them of him, and still not to go to him and not to ask of him, this would be as little profit as for a man to neglect a treasure, buried and hidden in the earth, after it had been pointed out to him. To live a life, a prayerless life, according to Calvin, where prayer is not a continual act that you do, a daily uh, practice. It is as though you are neglecting a, a rich treasure that is buried in the earth. It's right there. You know where it is. You're just not going and digging it up. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive um, mistake and, a, and a, a way in which we miss the benefits of our salvation. Calvin says regarding the necessity of prayer, it is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us by our Heavenly Father. For there is a communion of men with God. I love that phrase. Um, prayer for Calvin is a way in which we commune with God. Right? It's a way in which we, we dwell with Him. It's not simply a transactional thing. It is actually a form of communion before the face of God. There is a communion of men with God by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to Him in person. That prayer is a personal thing concerning his promises in order to experience where necessity so demands that what they believe was not in vain, though he had promised it in word alone. So it is by prayer, Calvin would say, that we make um, the things that we say to be true about God, we experience that in our lives, actually. Um, the, the, the things that God says are true about himself, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness, as we pray to him, as we commune with him in that way, as we acknowledge our, de our dependence on him, then we begin to experience, not only in word, but actually in our lives, the reality of those treasures of God. Therefore, we see that to us nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not, which we are not also bidden to ask of him in prayers. There's nothing that God promises to give us that we are not also bidden to ask for. Jesus says, you do not have because you do not ask, Right? Um, ask and you shall find, or ask, ask and you shall find, seek and you shall find. Um, th this, is, this is the life of the believer, is to be um, asking God for those things that he promises to give us. So it is true that we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. I love that 
metaphor that Calvin is using for prayer. We dig up by prayer. Prayer is a sort of a, it's a shoveling. It's a digging um, after the treasure that God promises, has promised us. It is a way which we press into the gospel, press into the reality of God's person and nature. We dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel. Um, I, I love that image. I think it's one that's worth putting in your mind and thinking of as of a metaphor for prayer. It's not a, it's not a normal sort of metaphor that we think of prayer, um, digging a hole in the ground to find the treasure that is buried there. But that is the way that Calvin describes it. Um, Calvin says, the necessity, continues to talk about the necessity of prayer. He says, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely, with good reason, the Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling upon his name. By doing so, we invoke the presence both of his providence, through which he watches over and guards our affairs, and of his power, through which he sustains us, weak as we are and well-nigh overcome, and of his goodness, through which he receives us, miserably burdened with sins, unto grace. In short, it is by prayer that we call him to reveal himself as wholly present to us. In prayer, we are at, basically, we're asking for God to show up. We're asking for God to be with us. We're asking him to do something by the power and presence and goodness of his Holy Spirit. Um, this, is, this is what we're asking for God to do in our prayer, to be present to us. That's the, the fundamental thing. Ultimately, it's not about the, the object that we're asking for or the, the, the healing that we want or whatever it might be. What we're asking for really, according to Calvin, is for God to be present to us. That is why we pray. That's why we dig with prayer out the treasures of the gospel, because we want the presence of God. Hence, there comes an extraordinary peace and repose to our consciences, consciences, for having disclosed to the Lord the necessity that was pressing upon us, we even rest fully in the thought that none of our ills is hid from him, who we are convinced has both the will and the power to take the best care of us. Um, prayer is like going to your father, um, who's, if he's a good father, and, and opening your heart to him and speaking to him, unburdening the things that you need, your anxieties, your concerns, and we've done that, you can relax, you can rest, you can say, well, my father knows, and he's going to act, he's going to work on my behalf. Except in this case, your father is all-powerful and completely good and completely present with you. Um, it is meant to bring peace and, uh, and, and rest unto you as you grow in your prayer. Any questions so far? Any comments before we move into the next section here? What do y'all think about that metaphor of digging up by prayer the treasures of the gospel? I think that's one worth holding on to. It implies that prayer is a, might be a little sweaty, right? Might be some work. <laughs> Maybe it just isn't something that you sort of fall into. You have to, it's actually a skill that you grow in. I think there are a lot of reasons why that metaphor works really well. Okay, let's look at this next section. Calvin says he anticipates an objection that one of or two people in the history of the church might have raised, or maybe a lot more than that. And that is basically this. Is prayer not superfluous? What if it's superfluous? All this time, Calvin's been arguing that God knows all things, that God ordains all things. All things have been ordained by him since beginning of the, before the beginning of the earth. Um, so isn't prayer then superfluous? Calvin's now going to anticipate that objection and try to show um, why prayer is still necessary. But someone will say, does not God know? 
even without being reminded, both in what respect we are troubled and what is expedient for us. So it may seem, in a sense, superfluous that he should be stirred up by our prayers, as if he were drowsily blinking or even sleeping until he is aroused by our voice, right? Is, is God sleeping? We have to wake him up and tell him what we need? Doesn't he already know that? Doesn't he already care? But they who thus reason do not observe to what end the Lord instructed his people to pray. For he ordained it not so much for his own sake as for ours. The Lord ordained prayer not for his own sake so much as for ours. Who else um, in the pantheon of 20th century Christian writers had a statement similar to that? C.S. Lewis, right? Letters to Malcolm, he talks about how uh, prayer does not change God, it changes us. Which I think is interesting. You know, uh, uh, Lewis, this is a little bit of a side, but Lewis liked to beat up on Calvinists a lot, if you read his writings, right? I think a lot of that is because he didn't, um, well, he just had some misperceptions, I think, of Calvinists. But I, I think this is interesting. I wonder, it makes me wonder if old Clive Staples wasn't reading a little Calvin um, when no one was looking. So uh, it, it, sounds, it sounds eerily familiar um, to, the, to the famous C.S. Lewis quote. And this was, uh, you know, about 300 years earlier. Um, therefore, um, so I'll just, you know, something to think about there, or 400 years earlier. Um, God ordained prayer not so much for his own sake as for ours. Therefore, even though while we grow dull and stupid toward our miseries, he watches and keeps guard in our behalf and sometimes even helps us unasked. Sometimes even we don't pray and ask for God's help, he still helps us, thank goodness. But still, it is very important for us to call upon him. And he gives us six reasons, um, as he is wont to do, um, why we should pray even though God already knows what we need and already intends to be good toward us. First, that our hearts may be fired with a zealous and burning desire ever to seek, love, and serve him while we become accustomed in every need to flee to him as to a sacred anchor. That our hearts may be fired, that our hearts may be drawn toward him, that we might have that communion of men with God when we actually stand before him and ask for his help and are honest before him and pour out our hearts, that our hearts might be fired with that kind of dwelling with him. Secondly, that there may enter our hearts no desire and no wish at all which we should, I'm sorry, no desire and no wish at all of which we should be ashamed to make him a witness, while we learn to set all our wishes before his eyes and even to pour out our hearts before him. So we begin to see not only that God is the one who gives us all good things, but God is the one with whom we may be honest and open. I love that aspect of prayer that Calvin talks about here. We pray so that we learn over time not to be ashamed of our desires, not to be ashamed of the things that we uh, want and feel like we lack. Um, God desires that kind of intimacy with us, even that intimacy where we pour out our whole hearts. It doesn't mean he's going to give us everything that we, he, that we think we need or we want, but it is a good thing, according to Calvin, for us to be honest with our Father, to submit our desires to him, to be open before him, and that is a way in which prayer benefits us. Thirdly, that we may be prepared to receive his benefits with true gratitude of heart and thanksgiving, benefits that our prayer reminds us come from his hand. Every time we pray, it is as if we are reminding ourselves that uh, this food is not here because I have um, earned it or created it or I'm responsible for it. Um, you know, this, the safety of this trip is not something that is in my uh, control. Um, the success of my day at work in home or in the office is not something that I have somehow 
authority over. Every time we pray, we are reminding ourselves that all our benefits, every good thing, comes not from ourselves, but from the hand of God. It prepares us actually to receive all good things that we have with true gratitude, Calvin says. It's a practice of helping us learn to be grateful. Uh, Fourthly, moreover, that having obtained what we are asking and being convinced that he has answered our prayers, we should be led to meditate upon his kindness more ardently. This is a flows out of the third reason, um, that as, we re- as God answers our prayers, as he is good to us, the practice of prayer actually trains us to thank him, um, to praise him, um, to be grateful, not just in general, but toward him in particular for the things um, that we have received, to meditate upon his kindness even more ardently. And fifthly, at that same time, we embrace with greater delight those things which we acknowledge have been obtained by his prayers. If you pray for something over time, again and again, and the Lord finally, in the, in the right time and place, grants it to you, you are then going to be grateful for it even more than if you had somehow um, you know, felt like you manufactured it on your own. Because it is then clearly a gift that God has given to you. Right? There's freedom in that, knowing that God has given you this gift. You've asked for it many times. He's been gracious to you. He has given it. And now, with greater delight, you can embrace it. Finally, that use and experience may, according to the measure of our feebleness, confirm his providence. When we pray, we're actually, in effect, learning to confirm the providence of God, learning to live in submission um, to his will and to his ways. Um, Because implicit in all of our prayers, of course, is what Jesus said, right? Not our will, but yours be done, O Father. Um, And of his own will, God opens, I'm sorry, to confirm his providence while we understand not only that he promises never to fail us and of his own will opens the way to call upon him at the very point of necessity, but also that he ever extends his hand to help his own, not wet nursing them with words, but defending them with present help. That's a kind of a confusing metaphor that Calvin used there. I think what he intends by that is he's saying a wet nurse is someone who is not the mother of a child who nurses it. I think what Calvin is saying is that God is like a mother in this sense, that he doesn't, you know, you know this was something maybe the nobility would do in his time and day, um, to have a servant west nurse their child. God is saying, um, God doesn't farm us out to others um, to take care of, but he takes care of us himself. Um, he cares for us um, with his own hand, his own present help. On account of these things, our most merciful Father, although he never sleeps or idles, still often gives the impression of one sleeping or idling in order that he may thus train us, otherwise idle and lazy, to seek, ask, and entreat him to our great good. Um, Jesus told one primary uh, parable about prayer, and in it there was a widow, and there was a what? An unjust judge, right? And who is God in this parable? The unjust judge, right? Um, He gives us the impression of sleeping or of idling, of being even a a hard-hearted judge, in order that he may thus train us. Prayer is about us being trained to entreat the Father, to seek and ask and entreat him to our great good, that we might grow in our dependence, in our gratitude, in our communion, um, in all of these things we might grow toward the Father. Any questions or comments about any of that before we move on to the next section? Yes, sir.
Yes. Yes. Yeah, so James, if you couldn't hear, James just was talking about Tim Keller talks about how we should argue, quote-unquote, with God when we come to him uh, boldly with our desires, that that wrestling with God in prayer is a part of the way in which we are conformed, our hearts are conformed to his will. I think that's right, and certainly you see that picture of prayer throughout the scriptures. You see it with Abraham when he intercedes with God for Sodom. Um, you see um, that with Moses when he intercedes for God, with God for Israel after the golden calf. Um, you see that um, with Job as he cries out to God and wrestles with him. Um, in the midst of his own suffering. And of course, you see that uh, with Jesus, who wrestles with his father even in the garden. Um, this is a, yeah, certainly wrestling with God, even, even pleading with him and, and, and complaining to him is a part of the intimacy, the act, the work, the digging up of prayer. All right, let's continue to move forward here. Men should pray confidently, Calvin says, without terror, but with reverential fear. It is strange that by promises of such great sweetness we are affected either so coldly or hardly at all. The great sweetness there is the goodness of God and his attentiveness to our prayer, attentiveness to our prayer. So that many of us prefer to wander through mazes and forsaking the fountain of living waters to dig out for ourselves dry cisterns rather than embrace God's generosity freely given to us. Uh, to, to live a prayerless life as a believer is an absurd contradiction. It doesn't make any sense about, in terms of what you profess to be true. You profess that God is good, that he wants to hear you, um, that he's trustworthy, that he um, is, is someone um, whom you can depend on. So wouldn't you ask him for what you need, and for what your heart cries out for? The name of the Lord is an impregnable citadel, says Solomon. The righteous man will flee to it and be saved. We receive the singular fruit of God's promises when we frame our prayers without hesitation or trepidation. I love that. That's a great um, phrase. Um, we don't need to hesitate. We don't need to be fearful when we pray. We can pray boldly. Of course, we know that God implicit in our prayers is the reality that it is his, going to be his will and not ours at the end of the day. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, even as James just pointed out, we shouldn't cry out to him. We should cry out to him without hesitation, without trepidation, without fear. Um, we don't need to, to put disclaimers on our prayers. We can be bold with him. We can, as Calvin puts it, relying upon the word of him whose majesty would otherwise terrify us. We dare to call upon him as father while he deigns to suggest the sweetest of names to us. We dare to call him father. That is the great mystery, of course, of prayer and is the great insight um, that we see in the life of Jesus. Not only that he calls God Father, but he invites and even um, exhorts his disciples to call him Father as well. Right? He says, our Father, not my Father. And that is a substantial thing. It remains for us, provided with such inducements, to know that we have from this enough evidence that he will hearken to us, inasmuch as our prayers demand, depend on no merit of ours, but their whole worth and hope of fulfillment are grounded in God's promises and depend upon him so that they need no other support, nor do they look about up and down, hither and thither. Our most gracious Father will not cast out those whom he not only urges but stirs up with every possible means to come to him. We have a Heavenly Father who wants us to commune with him, who wants us to pray to him, 
We are not offending him. We're not um, you know, being, being annoying when we pray. Even when we pray for the same thing over and over again, God is not displeased by that. Quite the opposite. Our Father actually urges and stirs up with every possible means us to come to him honestly, to pour out our hearts before him. A prayer in the name of Jesus. Since no man is worthy to present himself to God and come into his sight, the Heavenly Father himself to free us at once from shame and fear, which might well have thrown our hearts into despair, has given us his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to be our advocate and mediator with him, by whose guidance we may confidently come to him, and with such an intercessor trusting that nothing we ask in his name will be denied us, as nothing can be denied to him by the Father. Um, This is how we know we can be confident before God in our prayer, because we have a mediator, we have an intercessor who pleads for us on our behalf. Jesus is our advocate. And the, and the presence of Christ in the, uh, the, in the, in the, before the Father is what should give us ultimately confidence in our prayers. Uh, we're going to do a little biblical theology here for a second. This is an interesting point that Calvin makes. He says, and we ought carefully to note the circumstance of the time when Christ enjoins his disciples to take refuge in his intercession. Basically, Calvin is saying, when in the Gospels does, does um, Jesus tell his disciples to think of him as their intercessor before the Father? He says it comes, he says, after he will have ascended into heaven. This comes from John 16 on the night before Jesus' death when he's teaching his disciples of what will come um, when he dies and then rises again. He says, in that hour, after his resurrection, you will ask in my name. After I'm risen from the dead, then you will ask in my name. Why then does Christ assign a new hour wherein his disciples shall begin to pray in his name, unless it is that this grace, as it is more resplendent today, so deserves more approval among us. Christ, this is something that's hard to fully wrap our minds around. Christ, of course, has always been the mediator of the human race, um, even before his incarnation. Um, but and somehow in time and space and history, when Christ ascended to heaven, something shifted in terms of our standing before God. Christ, by his very ascension into heaven, would be a sure advocate, a more sure advocate of the church than he had been before. And that is why he especially enjoins his disciples to pray with boldness after he ascends to heaven. Therefore, to console them, their grief at his absence with some uncommon benefit, he takes upon himself the office of advocate and teaches that they had hitherto lacked the peculiar blessing that will now be given them to enjoy when relying upon his protection, they more freely call upon God. So your prayer is what Calvin is saying. If you read the Old Testament and you think there's some pretty bold prayers in there, your prayers should be bolder. They should be even more confident. They should be even more direct before God. And if you read the Psalms, there are a lot of direct prayers in that book, um, if you haven't noticed. Um, but Calvin is saying that even in redemptive history, something shifted in the, in, in the ascension of Christ, that we have even a greater way to call upon God now with Christ in his presence. The less excusable is our forwardness, unless we embrace with both arms this truly inestimable benefit, Christ our intercessor, which is destined for us alone. All right, private prayer. This is interesting. Um, Calvin here is basically speaking about the way in which our prayer is meant to be a kind of cycle, is meant to cycle between petition and thanksgiving. Petition and thanksgiving. 
All our hope and our wealth so reside in God that neither we nor our possessions prosper unless we can have his blessing. And so we ought to constantly commit ourselves and all that we have to him. If we believe that we are completely dependent upon God, our natural posture towards him will be one of constant petition and, and asking for his blessing, and his, his care. Then whatever we determine, speak, do, let us determine, speak, and do under his hand and will and a word under the hope of his help. Whatever we do, we should be asking for God's help in it, whether it's our work, our rest, our, our pleasure, our eating, all these things, we should ask for the Lord's help. And since, as we have said several times, he is honored in the manner due him when he has acknowledged the author of all blessings, it then follows that we ought so to receive all those things from his hand as to accompany them with continual thanksgiving. And there is no re just reason for us to make use of his benefits, which flow and come to us from his generosity with no other end, if we do not constantly utter his praise and render him thanks. So for Calvin, the life of prayer is to be one of constant petition, asking God's blessing, asking God's help, and then returning to him thanksgiving for all his faithfulness. Petition, thanksgiving. Petition, thanksgiving. And for it to be a continual cycle that feeds itself. Um, as you learn to thank God more for his faithfulness, you grow in your confidence to ask him more for things that you need, and so on, and so on. Um, the necessity and danger of public prayer. Um, this is an interesting um, passage here. Calvin says, The heavenly teacher, referring to Jesus, when he willed to lay down the best rule for prayer, from Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he bade us to enter into our bedroom, and there with the door closed, pray to our Father in secret, so that our Father who is in secret may hear us. By these words... I understand, as I understand them, he taught us to seek a retreat that would help us to descend into our heart with our whole thought and enter deeply within. He promises that God, whose temples our body ought to be, will be near to us in the affections of our hearts. For he did not mean to deny that it is fitting to pray in other places, right? You don't have to only pray in secret. But he shows that prayer is something secret. That's another quote I just want to phrase, I want to point out here and highlight. Prayer is something secret. There's an intimacy to our prayer lives. It should be something that is hidden, something that is even secret from others to some extent. That's what the Lord desires for us. He desires that kind of hidden intimacy. It's, of course, as, as, as Jesus himself teaches in Matthew 6, not something that you should boast about from the rooftops or use to to show your, your spiritual maturity or whatever, your prayer life should be something that is hidden, a secret life with God. That is, that is what is offered to you in your prayers. And I think that is, a, that is a fascinating way to think about your relationship with your Heavenly Father. There is an, an individuality. There is a certain kind of privacy um, and hiddenness. And think about that. I mean, any relationship, right, that is going to be truly intimate in your life has to have this kind of secretness, right, this kind of hiddenness. Um, no one knows the intimacy between a husband and a wife, right? No one knows um, the intimacy between a parent and a child. Um, any a brother and a sister, um, close friends with one another, whatever it might be, a roommate with another roommate. These, these, the relationships in our lives that are most intimate um, contain always a secret side, a side that others cannot fully understand or observe 
or see. And the same, Calvin is saying, should be true in our relationship with our Father. There should be an intimacy that is hidden, even from all others, with him. Because prayer than him, because prayer is something secret, which is both principally lodged in the heart and requires a tranquility far from all our teeming cares. The Lord himself also, with therefore with good reason, the Lord Jesus, that is, when he determined to devote himself more intensely to prayers, habitually withdrew to a quiet spot far away from the tumult of men. But he did so to impress us with his example that we must not neglect these helps, whereby our mind, too unsteady by itself, more inclines to earnest application in prayer. Calvin is saying it is, a, it is good for you to go away and be quiet and into your closet if you need it to be, in your bedroom, and shut the door and be with your father, right? And that's a picture of something you can do in a hundred places. Um, but it is good for us. It is even um, necessary for us, if we're going to have this kind of intimacy with the Lord, to be alone with him, uh, to be silent before him, uh, to be present with him, to speak with him in an intimate way. I think this is a this is a important um, and even crucial aspect of our lives of prayer, and one I would commend to us. Um, but Calvin does not um, condemn public prayer. Um, rather, he says, we do not condemn speaking and singing, but rather strongly commend them, for provided they are associated with the heart's affection. Um, on speaking and singing in prayer, he says. Uh, remember that hymns are prayers as well. When we sing hymns together in the church, what we're doing is we're praying together in a glorified and more beautiful kind of way. For thus do they exercise the mind in thinking of God and keep it attentive. When we pray publicly and commonly together, we're actually exercising our mind and keeping it attentive. Um, anyone ever tried to pray alone and gotten distracted? Not me, not me right? I'm sure it hasn't happened to you. And this, of course, that's part of the deal, right? That's part of what it means to grow in prayer. But Calvin is saying one of the benefits of public common prayers, whether they're sung or spoken, is that they focus our mind. They keep it attentive, unstable and variable as we are, and readily relaxed and diverted in different situations, different directions, unless it be supported by various helps. Moreover, since the glory of God ought in a measure to shine forth in the several parts of our bodies, it is especially fitting that the tongue has been assigned and destined for this task, right? We don't have to pray by speaking, but it is especially appropriate to pray by speaking or singing. And I would, even in your private prayer lives, I would encourage you to speak out loud before God. Um, I think mental prayer especially is very difficult to do in a, in a disciplined way. There's something about speaking out loud, using our tongues, even when we're alone, um, in praying to God that is very helpful in terms of focusing our mind and our affections. Um, the tongue was peculiarly created, Calvin says, to tell and pro proclaim the praise of God. But the chief use of the tongue is in public prayers which are offered in the assembly of believers, by which it comes about that with one common voice, and as it were with the same mouth, when we're all praying a printed prayer in the order of worship, we are praying with one tongue, with one mouth before God. We're all glorifying God together as we sing the same words of the hymn, worshiping him with one spirit and the same faith. And we do this openly that all men mutually, each from his brother, may receive the confession of faith and be invited and prompted by his example. And I, I've said this to you before, but it's worth saying again, the reason I want us all to participate in the hymns and in the prayers and everything that is part of the public aspect of worship is not just for your own heart, but is a way of loving your neighbor. It is a way of loving your neighbor. It is what you are called to do 
even if you do not like singing, even if you do not like, for whatever reason, reading printed words in public. It is still something <laughs> that you're called to do, not just for your own sake, but that you might love your brother and your sister um, who is next to you. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is a help to us. Calvin talks a little about the Lord's Prayer, and he gives us a lot of exposition of the Lord's Prayer in this chapter. We don't have time for that today, but I would encourage you to take a look at it. Um, Calvin talks about forms of prayers. Um, as, as the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer gives us a confidence about what we can pray about before God. Um, Calvin also encourages prayer at regular times. Um, he says that our weakness is such as it should be supported by many aids. And our sluggishness is such that it needs to be goaded. Calvin is a realist when it comes to prayer. He knows it is very easy for us to go throughout the whole day and never stop and pray at all. And so he says, as a help to that, to our sluggishness and weakness, each of us should set apart certain hours for this exercise. These hours should not pass without prayer, and during them all the devotion of the heart should be completely engaged in it. The hours of prayer that Calvin um, commends for us are when we arise in the morning, when we get up, when we have our coffee or whatever it might be, before we sit down for our daily work, right, when we get into the office or when we begin um, to care for our children at home, when we sit down to a meal, after the meal, when we've eaten, and then we're, when we're getting ready to retire for bed. These are the times of the day, the hours of the day that Calvin commends us um, to stop and pause and pray, even if it's just for a minute or 30 seconds. It is, a, it is a good practice to do this. And I would encourage this as well. I think this is a, a very good pattern. Many of us are well accustomed to praying uh, before we eat. But what about after we eat? What about before we begin our work? What about first thing in the morning? What about last thing at night? These are also good hours to pray. I want to close with this. This is the last section of this chapter. I think it's really rich. Unheard prayers. What about unheard prayers? But if finally, even after long waiting, our senses cannot learn the benefit received from prayer or perceive any fruit from it, still our faith will make us sure of what cannot be perceived by sense, so that, that what we have obtained was expedient. That, what, that we have obtained what was expedient. Even if God does not answer our prayer in the way we want, he still gives us what is right. For the Lord so often and so certainly promises to care for us in our troubles when they have once been laid upon his bosom. And so he will cause us to possess abundance in poverty and comfort in affliction. For though all things fail us, yet God will never forsake us, who cannot disappoint the expectation and patience of his people. He alone will be for us in place of all things, since all good things are contained in him. And he will reveal them to us on the day of judgment, when his kingdom will be plainly manifested. I love that statement, and we think about what do we do with our unanswered prayers? That God alone will be for us in place of all things. There are times when we ask for something from the Father, even something that is good, um, something that, that is, uh, yeah, a good thing in general, and yet the Lord will not give it to us. And what does he give us? Calvin says he gives us himself. There are times when the way that the Lord answers our prayers is by giving himself for us. He alone will be for us in place of all things. And he goes on from here. This is another great section. I would commend it to you. You can read it at your leisure in the PDF I sent out last night in the email. But I just want to close with that, that sometimes in the place of unanswered prayers, this is what the Lord offers. He offers himself. 
And because all things, all good things are contained in him, it is enough. And it will be revealed on the last day, how it all makes sense. I think that's a wonderful um, answer um, that fits with the scriptures as Calvin speaks about the way that prayer works. I went over the top for questions this morning. Um, it's covered a lot, but I think it's really rich. I would encourage you to, um, to read over the handout that I emailed out last night, to reflect on these things, to think about your own prayer life. This is, we believe, one of the means of grace, um, word, sacrament, and prayer. This is one of the ways in which the Lord desires to grow us in Christ and even to commune with us and give us himself. I would encourage and commend a life of regular, daily, even constant prayer as a way to experience that. Uh, let's, let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for um, the way that you commune with us in our prayers. I do pray for each one of us here this morning, Father, that we would grow up in Christ, that we'd be learned to be like him, to be constantly dependent upon your presence and your power and your goodness, um, to cry out to you from our hearts about the things that we need and desire, and to trust you that you are with us, and that is enough. We are never alone, Father, for you are with us. We thank you for that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.